Welcome to another episode of Christopher Wynne's I Never Knew That, opening the door onto a world of knowledge, adventure and surprise, as we travel around Britain and Ireland in search of entertaining stories and fascinating facts that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. I'm Christopher Wynne, author of the I Never Knew That book series about the countries and peoples of Britain and Ireland, and I will be your guide as we travel around the regions of England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, meeting friends along the way and learning about the people and places that make these beautiful islands the most magical place on earth. In this episode, we visit southern Scotland, travelling first along the River Tweed in the border country, taking in the baronial home of Scotland's most famous novelist, two beautiful ruined abbeys with stories to tell, and the world's first vehicular suspension bridge. And then we take a ride to Glasgow on the world's first pedal bike. Stop 1. The River Tweed Merrily swim we, the moon shines bright There's a golden gleam on the distant height There's a silver shadow on the alders dank And the drooping willows that wave on the bank So does Sir Walter Scott describe the River Tweed in his poem cunningly titled On Tweed River. The River Tweed, one of the finest salmon rivers in the world, rises at Tweed's Well in the Lowther Hills north of Moffat, very close to the source of the River Clyde. But while the Clyde flows westward to Glasgow and beyond, the Tweed flows eastwards to meet the North Sea at Berwick-on-Tweed, an historic town that has changed hands between the Scots and the English 13 times. The name Tweed comes from an old Celtic word meaning border, and for much of its 97-mile course, the river indeed forms the border between Scotland and England. Towns along the Tweed, in particular Galashiels and Hoyk, are famous for their woollen mills, and in particular for producing Tweed, although the rough woollen fabric only indirectly takes its name from the river. In 1831, a merchant in London received a letter from a woollen firm in Hoyk promoting their Tweel, which is the Scottish word for twill, a type of hard-wearing textile weave. The harassed clerk at the London company read it as tweed, understandably since the product came from a company located on the banks of the River Tweed. 
and the material was thereafter advertised as tweed, and the name stuck. Interestingly, another clothing company from Hoik also gave the world a famous brand name. The border family of Pringle, from the ancient lands of Hopring Hill, Norse for enclosed valley of the Round Hill, north of Melrose, have been prominent in the woolen industry since the 16th century, when they were responsible for overseeing the shearing, storage and transport of wool from the king's sheep. And in 1815, Robert Pringle established Pringle of Scotland in Hoyk to manufacture knitted hosiery. In 1870, Pringle began importing fine goat's wool from Kashmir in India to produce the Kashmir sweaters, for which Pringle of Scotland are famous. In the 1930s, they designed a new two-piece Kashmir cardigan, which was teamed up with a single string of pearls to create the classic British look of twinset and pearls. Fascinating although this is, it is by the by. In common with many other border families, over the years a number of Pringles emigrated to North America. Some of them ended up in Cincinnati in Ohio and gave their name to a suburban street, Pringle Drive. When Procter & Gamble, now busy spreading compassion across the world by appointment, were looking for a name to call their new potato snack, they scoured the Cincinnati phone book for inspiration and came across Pringle Drive. Perfect! Not only did the name Pringle sound snappy, but it cleverly incorporated the first two letters of Proctor and the last two letters of Gamble. And thus did an old family from Hopring Hill in Scotland give their name to a new potato snack from the Midwest of America, Pringles. Once you pop, you can't stop. Stop 2. Abbotsford, Roxburghshire. It is a poor thing, but mine own. So said Scotland's most famous novelist, Sir Walter Scott, when he bought the run-down farm of Claryhall, or Dirty Hollow, set on the banks of the River Tweed near Melrose, in 1811. The first thing he did was change the name to Abbotsford, after the nearby centuries-old river crossing once used by the abbots of Melrose. He then, over the next twelve years, transformed the ramshackle farmhouse into a grand baronial conundrum castle, as he called it, and expanded the estate into over 1,000 acres, all paid for by the royalties from his hugely successful books. Walter Scott was born in Edinburgh in 1771 and suffered from polio as a boy, spending much of his youth recuperating at his grandfather's house near Kelso. 
During that time, he explored and came to love the countryside and legends of the borderlands. And later, as a novelist, he used this knowledge and passion to champion Scotland and Scotland's history, creating a romantic image of a wild and beautiful land of ancient kingdoms filled with valiant clansmen and heroic deeds. His orchestration of the visit of George IV in 1822 helped to reintroduce the Highland culture that had been stamped out after the Jacobite uprisings of 1715 and 1745 and established tartan as the national dress. Abbotsford House is a very personal expression of Scott's life. The greatest historical novel I have left for posterity. As he describes it, and a veritable treasure house of Scottish heritage and artefacts. Incorporated into the house are a door from Edinburgh's toll booth and carved oak panels from Dunfermline Old Kirk, while the main entrance is modelled on a porch from Linlithgow Palace and the entrance hall is floored with black and white marble from the Hebrides. Assembled in the armory are Rob Roy's broadsword, dagger and sporran, a crucifix belonging to Mary Queen of Scots, along with the keys to Loch Leven Castle, from where she escaped in 1568. A pocketbook made by Flora MacDonald, who helped Bonnie Prince Charlie escape from Scotland after the Battle of Culloden in 1746 a glass engraved by the poet Robert Burns, and that essential possession of every self-respecting house in Scotland, a lock of Bonnie Prince Charlie's hair. He must have been an right hairy man to provide so many flowing locks to so many Scottish households. Perhaps the most intriguing room is the library, where Scott's unrivalled collection of 20,000 Scottish books is housed beneath a carved cedarwood roof, copied from that at Rosslyn Chapel near Edinburgh. The roof brought fans of the Da Vinci Code flocking to Abbotsford, convinced that Scott must somehow have uncovered the secret of the Holy Grail. If he did, he took the secret with him to the grave. Abbotsford has been opened for the public to explore since 1840, one of Scotland's first tourist attractions. It remains almost unchanged since Scott lived there, and the highlight of any visit is the cosy, intimate study where he wrote his famous novels. Two years after he had finished Abbotsford, Scott's publishers, in which he was a partner, went bust, leaving Scott facing huge debts, and he dedicated the rest of his life to writing ceaselessly to pay off those debts. I shall not yield without a fight for it. My own right hand shall do it. O invention, rouse thyself. Over the next six years, he managed to pay off almost £86,000 of the debt, equivalent to some £7 million today, but the effort exhausted him, 
and he died of a stroke in the dining room at Abbotsford on 21st of September 1832 at the age of 61. Stop 3. Melrose Abbey, Roxburghshire. If thou wouldst view fair Melrose aright, go visit it by the pale moonlight. So advises the ubiquitous Sir Walter Scott in The Lay of the Minstrel, and I'm sure he is right, but Melrose is beautiful at any time of day or night. In fact, the custodian of the abbey in Scott's day, John Bower, thought Melrose best by candlelight. A candle, he tells us, does not licked up the abbey at a hint to be sure, but then you can shift it about and show the old ruin bit by bit whilst the moon only shines on one side. Indeed. Melrose, slumbering in the shadow of the three distinctive peaks of the Eildon Hills, where King Arthur lies ready to ride forth with his knights when Britain is threatened, was founded as a Cistercian house in 1136 by King David I of Scotland, and, although like the other border abbeys it was frequently sacked and finally destroyed in the Scottish Reformation, its ruins are regarded as the prettiest of all the border abbeys, renowned for the beauty and delicacy of the stone carvings, and for two magnificent windows at the east end and in the north transept slender shafts of shapely stone, as Scott describes them. However, Melrose's greatest treasure is the brave heart of Robert the Bruce, discovered in a silver casket under the floor of the chapter house in 1921. The original world-renowned symbol of Scotland known as Braveheart was not, as most of the world thinks, the historically challenged Mel Gibson, but in fact was Robert the Bruce. How so, you ask? I will tell you. Robert the Bruce died in 1329 having failed to achieve his ambition to lead a crusade to the Holy Land, and so his best friend, Sir James Douglas, took possession of the King's heart, placed it in a silver casket and took it with him when he went off to fight the infidel viz. the Moors in Spain. Douglas was mortally wounded in battle, and as he fell, he flung the royal heart at the enemy with the cry, Forward, brave heart! The casket containing the Bruce's heart was retrieved from the battlefield and returned to Scotland, where it was buried at Melrose. As Rabbi Burns put it, My heart is in the Highlands or in this case, Melrose.
The rest of the Bruce's body, meanwhile, had been buried in Dunfermline Abbey. An incidental aside. Did you know that the popular sport of seven-a-side rugby, or rugby sevens, as it is known by the cognoscenti, was invented in Melrose by a brace of butchers? No, me neither, but it was. In 1883, the committee of Melrose Rugby Club met to organise an end-of-season sports gala, but, as is usual with these occasions, there were concerns about the expense. Committee member Butcher Ned Haig and his apprentice David Sanderson came up with the idea of cutting the teams down from 15 players to 7 and the playing time to 15 minutes, two halves of 7 minutes with a one minute half-time break. Seven border clubs entered the first tournament on 28th of April 1883 with Gala and Melrose reaching the final. The game ended in a draw so the Melrose captain the aforementioned apprentice butcher, Sanderson, suggested they should play on until someone scored, thus pioneering another concept that has since been adopted by professional sport, sudden death extra time. Fittingly, Sanderson himself scored the winning try and Melrose lifted the first ever Rugby Sevens Cup. Try, try and try again, as Robert the Bruce might say. Stop 4. Drybra Abbey, Berwickshire Breathes there the man with soul so dead who never to himself hath said, This is my own my native land. So wrote Sir Walter Scott again, in the lay of the last minstrel, his words inspired by the glorious view from Bemerside Hill, across the River Tweed to the Eildon Hills, that became known as Scott's View. The grandest and most extensive panorama in the borderland, as he described it. Scott is buried amongst the ruins of Drybra Abbey, a couple of miles to the south, and during his funeral procession from Abbotsford, his home upstream on the Tweed, in 1832, the horses pulling his coffin stopped at Scott's view of their own accord, as if to give their master a last look at his beloved vista. Drybra Abbey sits embowered in a lazy loop of the River Tweed and was founded in 1150 as a Premonstratensian house by the Norman knight 
Hugh de Morville, Constable of Scotland and friend of the Norman King David of Scotland. Hugh's son, another Hugh de Morville, was one of the four knights who murdered Thomas a Becket in Canterbury Cathedral in 1170. Like all the abbeys on the borders of Scotland and England, Dryborough was sacked and pillaged by English soldiers on their way to and from various altercations with the Scots. And although being rebuilt each time, it was finally burned down by the Earl of Harford in 1545 and left to decay into the romantic ruin we see there today. Drybra is a wonderfully peaceful and atmospheric place, and it is no surprise that Sir Walter Scott wanted to be buried in such an idyllic spot. His Halliburton ancestors had once owned the Abbey lands, and the family had retained the right of stretching our bones here. Incidentally, did you know that Sir Walter Scott's monument on Prince's Street in Edinburgh, at just over 200 feet high, is the second tallest monument to a writer in the whole world? No? Well, it is. The tallest, before you ask, is the Joseph Marty Memorial in Havana, Cuba, which reaches a whopping 358 feet high. Not far from Scott's marble tomb in the north transept is a simple headstone marking the grave of Field Marshal Earl Haig, Commander-in-Chief of the British forces in France during the Great War. At his own request, Haig lies beneath the same kind of simple headstone as those buried on the battlefields of France. Although his reputation has suffered as a result of the slaughter at Mons and Ypres, his assault on the Hindenburg Line in 1918 hastened the end of the conflict, and his memory is held in high esteem at Dryborough for his tireless work caring for the wounded and bereaved. Haig was instrumental in founding the British Legion in 1921 to provide financial, social and emotional support for ex-servicemen and their dependents, and he served as its first president. Every year on the Sunday nearest his birthday, June 19th, the Legion holds a Founders' Day service at Dryborough Abbey, especially poignant in this, the British Legion's centenary year. Haig's home was nearby Bemerside House, where there have been Hagues for 800 years since the 12th century, when the Norman knight Petrus de Haga was granted the lands and lairdship of Bemerside by the Earl of March, to whose daughter he was married. As the 13th century poet Thomas the Rhymer once said, Tide what may betide, Hague shall be Hague of Bemerside. During that 800 years, the Hagues have often been in the wars, mostly against an Edward. John, the third Baron Haig, fought alongside William Wallace against Edward I at the Battle of Stirling Bridge in 1297. His son Petrus, the fourth Baron, 
fought against Edward II at Bannockburn in 1314, and died at the Battle of Halladon Hill in 1333, defending the town of Berwick against Edward III. Henry, the 10th Baron, died at Flodden Field in 1513. In 1627, a member of the clan Haig, Robert Haig, began distilling whisky illegally on his farm near Stirling. And in 1733, his great-grandson Cain Mackenzie Haig established the world's first commercial distillery nearby. His grandson John founded John Haig & Co and promptly expired after fathering 11 children, one of whom, Margaret, married a local lawyer, John Jameson, and went with him to Ireland to found Jameson's Whiskey. In the 1890s, John Hagen Co. introduced their famous three-sided dimple bottle, the first bottle design, along with the Coca-Cola bottle, to be patented in the US, and now a collector's item, despite still being produced. The company's long-running advertising slogan, Don't be vague, ask for Haig has been voted one of Britain's top 10 favourite slogans, and Haig Whiskey is recognised as the oldest whisky in the world. Despite all this, Field Marshal Earl Haig never followed his father into the family whisky business. But talking of spirits brings us back to the Earl's burial place, Dryborough Abbey, haunted as it famously is by the spirit of the melancholy nun of Dryborough. Another resident of the Abbey, Sir Walter Scott, tells us that the nun was a woman who made herself a home in the Abbey vault in the mid-18th century and was never seen again because she had made a vow that during the absence of the man to whom she was attached she would never look upon the sun her lover never returned he fell during the civil war of 1745-6 to and she never more beheld the light of day it is rumoured that she still comes out at night to scavenge for food and to await her love amongst the ruins. And certainly, as dusk falls across these remote and eerie ruins, the sound of whispers and weeping can sometimes be heard amongst the rustle of the trees. Thank you.
Stop 5. The Union Bridge, Berwickshire. Uniting Scotland with England across the Tweed at Fishwick, 10 miles west of Berwick, is the Union Bridge, the first suspension bridge to be constructed anywhere in the world capable of bearing road traffic. With a span of 360 feet, it was built in 1820 by former naval officer Captain Sir Samuel Brown, supplier of chains to the Royal Navy using a new kind of link for chain cables that he had devised to facilitate the creation of larger and heavier bridges. Apparently, rather like Robert the Bruce, who was encouraged to try, try and try again by watching a spider struggle persistently to create a web, Brown was also inspired in developing his concept for a suspension bridge by studying a spider's web suspended in a corner of his workshop. Brown went on to design and build the world's first pleasure pier, the Chain Pier, in Brighton in 1823. And anyone who knows that famous picture of Isambard Kingdom Brunel, with cigar and stovepipe hat, standing in front of a pile of huge chains at the launch of the SS Great Eastern in 1857, might be interested to know that the chains which were the launching chains for the biggest ship ever launched anywhere in the world at the time, were designed and made by Samuel Brown. On the brick arch on the Scottish side of the Union Bridge, there is a plaque inscribed with the Latin words Vis Unita Fortior, which translates as United, Strength is Stronger Still. Topical. And for our final stop, we leave the Tweed and travel west into the hills of Dumfrieshire. Stop 6. Keir Mill, Dumfrieshire. He builded better than he knew. These six simple words from a poem by Ralph Waldo Emerson, carved on a plaque attached to the wall of the Courthill Smithy, outside the village of Keir Mill, commemorate the genius of the humble blacksmith who was born here and whose invention, which was built here, changed the world. Keir Mill is a quiet, sleepy hamlet lost in the hills about 14 miles north of Dumfries. Born here in 1812 was Kirkpatrick Macmillan, one of many sons of the village blacksmith, and when he had become of age, the young Macmillan began working for the family business. One fine day, a strange noise made him look up from his work, and he was amazed to see a most extraordinary contraption, such as he had never set eyes on before, trundling past the smithy, propelled by a rather red-faced chap puffing from his exertion. Kirkpatrick Macmillan had just seen his first velocipede, otherwise known as a hobby horse or a dandy horse, which was basically a wooden beam with a wheel at each end, 
fitted with handlebars and a saddle. Macmillan was smitten and decided he wanted to build one for himself, which he did. It didn't take long for Macmillan to spot the flaw in the design. You had to propel the machine along by pushing on the ground with your feet, and on the hilly roads around Keir Mill this pretty soon became very tiring. So Macmillan set about devising a system to overcome this by attaching pedals to the back wheel, with the pedal power transmitted to a crank on the wheel via a connecting rod, similar to the drive shaft on a steam locomotive. It took him about a year to iron out the wrinkles, but eventually, one clear morning in 1839, Kirkpatrick Macmillan, beaming proudly, wheeled his machine out of the smithy and into the sunshine, the cheering crowds and history. He had invented the pedal bike, one of the greatest British inventions of the Victorian or any other era. The local people thought he was dotty, Daft Pate, they called him, but that day their shy village blacksmith spawned a mighty industry. There are over a billion bicycles in the world today, and himself became the first of that bane of the modern motorist, the cyclist. Fortunately for the sensitive Scottish villagers, Lycra had yet to be invented. Macmillan was soon making frequent trips into Dumfries, and in June 1842 he set off on the big one, 68 miles to Glasgow. The trip took him two days, and he was mobbed when he arrived in the Gorbals. In the melee, a small girl was knocked down and slightly injured, and Macmillan was fined five shillings for speeding at a fiendish eight miles per hour. The first but not the last traffic offence ever perpetrated by a cyclist. In the event, the magistrate paid the fine for him, in return for a go on the pedal bike. When the excitement was over and Macmillan got back to Keir Mill, he dismounted rather stiffly, I should imagine, and leant the machine against the wall of the smithy before going off to rest from his endeavours. While he was gone, his mischievous niece, Mary Marchbank, despite being forbidden by her parents, who thought cycling a most unsuitable activity for a young girl, snuck away with the pedal bike and took it through the village for a spin, thus becoming the world's first lady cyclist. Disgraceful. Despite the interest shown in his pedal bike, even Prince Albert owned one, Macmillan was happy with his life as a blacksmith and never bothered to patent his invention. It was, naturally, soon copied and exploited by others less scrupulous and it wasn't until long after his death in 1878 
that Kirkpatrick Macmillan was finally acknowledged as the true inventor of the pedal bike. And today, every year, in the last week in May, the Kirkpatrick Macmillan Cycle Rally is held around Dumfries and Galloway in his memory. Well, that concludes the first part of our tour of Southern Scotland. In the next episode, we visit more of Southern Scotland, taking in a pink palace that was once the only place in the world where you could see a Rembrandt, a Holbein and a Da Vinci simultaneously. A lock where history was made. The romantic abbey where the world's first sweetheart lies. The modest birthplace of Scotland's national poet, and the only place in Britain visited by the King. Or was it? This has been an I Never Knew That production, brought to you by Christopher Wynne, with guest star Rupert Van Sittert. Find out more at ChristopherWynne'sIneverKnewThat.com and check out the I Never Knew That books online and at all good bookshops. My thanks to Rupert, to my executive producer, Jeremy Conrad, and to you for listening. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review, and join me again next time to discover more tales that will make you want to exclaim again and again, I never knew that. <laughs> <laughs>